Welcome back to Mid Wretched, friends. Welcome back. Happy summer. Happy very, very summer. Very, very summer. Happy, like, devil's butt crack summer heat. Yeah. It is so gross. It's so gross. Yeah. I got nothing. I have nothing to add because it's kind of awful. Um, Yeah. It's really disgusting. But you just had uh, an introvert weekend. (laughs) I did have an introvert weekend. It was the best weekend I have had in a very long time. I saw no one. I did nothing. I spent a lot of time in my garden and with my dog. I went to yoga a few times and it was so lovely. It was so lovely. Can you talk about the cake, please? Because <laughs> I'm obsessed with the cake. I've been like thinking about it all the I have one <laughs> slice left and I'm going to eat it right after this. Yes. My wonderful, wonderful partner who respects my introvert needs he is like mm-hmm. one of the few ambiverts i have ever met so he fully respects my needs yeah. and i love it so much this entire for the last like two or three weeks i have been like fourth of july weekend that's my weekend it's introvert weekend mm-hmm. we're not seeing anybody i'm not going anywhere you do whatever you want i'm not leaving the fucking basement sofa yeah so <laughs> i had to work on friday and i had two early intervention evaluations which meant I was with kids under three all day Mm. (laughs) until five o'clock that's my life it's not mine they are they are very energetic I know I know so I left work I like closed everything out in a big huff and jetted out the door and I text my partner on the way home was like hey gonna stop and get like something probably whiskey (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on my way home that sounds yep. about right and he was like okay well if you get home don't go in the fridge <laughs> which he's terrible he's fucking terrible at secrets but he's so cute yes he is he is he is <laughs> he often funnels like the big ones to me and i'm like i'm gonna keep this secret but i hope that he does, he does it. <laughs> anyway he's he's home by the time i get home because i think he was like walking the dog or something like that and so i get home and he's, like, standing there, and he has, like, something behind his back. I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I was like, I told you we're not doing anything this weekend. Don't you fucking dare surprise me with shit. <laughs> and he brings me this, like, chocolate cake that says no people weekend and a big zero candle <laughs> that he had lit on it. I saw that picture, and I just died. Like, I erupted. <laughs> And probably the hardiest laugh I've had in a long time. Because <laughs> yeah. I know how hard it's been for you to have these, like, packed weekends back to back to back. And it's just, like, it's just so perfect. And I just, I just love him so much. <laughs> it was just, oh, it was just perfect. I just loved it. Was it was so my big cute. no people cake. And it made me so mm. happy. And yes. Yeah. And he's a good cook. So I'm sure it was also a delicious mm, cake. It was a delicious cake. He does. I love all of my people, but this post-quarantine world where I have been like visiting or traveling or seeing somebody all weekend, every weekend, it ain't my jam. I love you guys, but I needed this. No, I think, I mean, it's tough even for the very extroverted amongst us like me, like to go from like nothing to suddenly like the social calendar is full is honestly kind of jarring. So... Once it eases out and I'm back into, if I'm ever back into my normal social calendar, which is like 
moderate, I would say, like not crazy or anything. I think that'll feel good. But right now it's like everyone just like wants a piece. You yeah, know? yeah. And I'm like one peopling event per month, please. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. I'm glad to hear that I don't count. You don't count. And also, just in case you're wondering, never don't send me pictures of your garden. Because that was like the extent of oh, my social yeah. contact this weekend was exchanging garden pics with you. <laughs> I know. And I was like, this this I'll do. I'm not going to talk to you about other stuff, but I'm going to send you pictures of my plants. <laughs> So reconnecting today is so lovely and beautiful. And we get to talk about a case that you have kind of investigated pretty much from scratch, Uh, which is super cool. I'm going to dive right into it unless you have anything else you wanted to chat about. No, I would just um, make an interesting note that the federal death penalty has been paused right now yes it has been which i think gives us some time as a community to and a country to reflect on the significance of that uh not that it's it's not abolished by any means it's paused after oh trump's blitz basically so yeah i would just think about the implications of that kind of as they mean to you as you know especially it's like a true crime audience Mm -hmm. yeah i just wanted to throw that out there but otherwise do I you? had another quick note about something we don't need to talk about now, but I think would be a really interesting chat in the future. Um, yeah. The One of the two girls, and her, I'm na- blanking on her name, I'm so sorry, that committed these Slender Man stabbings is set to mm-hmm. be released from the yes. Public Mental Health Institution. And I think that would be a fun chat for us to have one day. Yeah, that is kind of on, like, my radar for fall, winter, unless you want to take that one. Well, she is set to be released, I think, in less than 60 days now, and I think it would be interesting to cover Mm -hmm. it before, right around, before around the time she gets released. I think that would be interesting for us to cover. Yeah, that really could be. That really could be. We can chat. Yeah, we should talk about that. We can chat. We can adjust. If you want to hear a psychologist. Which I do. All right. So those all to the side. We're going to dive right into the case after I make a quick quick little content warning so quick heads up we are going to be discussing the catholic church today clerical abuse and sexual abuse are included in these conversations so if you're not in the headspace for that we get it catch us next week and please Mm -hmm. take care of yourself we love you absolutely yeah so we are traveling to one of my many homes in the midwest yes um today we're going to toledo ohio Oh, Toledo. So if I sound nervous talking about this case, it's because I am. Oh. So I didn't grow up in Toledo, but my parents did. My grandparents lived there. All my extended family is from Toledo. And Mm -hmm. some of the locations we're going to be visiting are locations I have been to, heavily attended by my parents and my grandparents. So the hospitals, the schools, the churches. I have family connections there. Some of the people we're going to be talking about, there's family connections to. Mm -hmm. I talked to some family members about this case, kind of going into it, and got different information from different sides of my family. That Mm -hmm. all kind of fits into this narrative. So beyond the normal pressure of getting the names and the culture right, there's some personal connections (laughs) that... uh, Yeah. There's some tendrils in this case. There are some tendrils. Got it. Just pretend you're only talking to me. Which is really what this should be. It should be. So heads up, there are a lot of strings and places to go in this case. 
And if you feel like they don't get all tied up in a nice little package, um, they're not going to. So here we go. Let's do Talk it. Talk a little bit about Toledo. Toledo is a lovely old Rust Belt city. It's an immigrant yes. city. It has always felt very Catholic to me because mm. of my family being there. But even in the research that I've done, even in talking to people, the church really did have influence in basically everything in this city. Yeah. Especially up into like the 70s, the 80s, which is where we are going to land in this case. My feeling was always that it was because they were church leaders and they were people that you went to and they were ingrained in your community and all this and that. And I think that that is just kind of important to get your headspace around in order to understand yeah. how this happened. Because for me to mm. understand it, I really had to put myself in the headspace of my grandma or my boosh who did trust these people and who did go to these people and send my children to these people and all of that. Yeah, totally. Not everyone might know what a boosh is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, even we use a weird word. So we use the word boosh to say grandma. Other mm -hmm. Polish people will say babcha or babushka, mm. what have you. But boosh just means yes. essentially old lady. Babcha is the proper word for grandma. Yeah. But I think you pointing that out helps me to notice. Like we are talking about the Polish community in Toledo, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Very firmly ingrained Catholic Polish community. All right. A mm -hmm. lot of first-generation people, a lot of immigrants, a lot of families that didn't really necessarily socialize outside of the Polish neighborhoods. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking like really insular communities here. So Toledo, Ohio also happened to be the home of Sister Margaret Ann Paul. Uh, Sister Paul had joined the Sisters of Mercy at a young age and mm. really never looked back. We love a Sister of Mercy. We were educated by Sisters of Mercy. We were. <laughs> I, I thought it. about putting that more into the script, but I was like, no, I don't need to make this entirely personal. I know, but... We love a know, Sister. They just make me happy. I get really geeky about Catholic stuff, so just pardon me. So I got to do a little bit of research on the Sisters of Mercy. Did you know that they were not originally a religious order? No, I did not know that. So they were started by, I'm going to jump around my own notes now, on purpose. The Sisters of Mercy were founded in Ireland by Catherine Macaulay, originally mm -hmm. just as a general, a home and kind of respite for impoverished and sickly girls and women during the famine. And yeah. they were founded specifically as a secular organization. That's interesting. They only became a religious order essentially because it was just easier to do that in Ireland at the time. That makes sense. You could get more support and more recognition and basically more clout if you just said you yeah. were a religious order. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's so interesting. Yeah. But by the time Sister Paul came onto the scene, they were a firmly established religious order that worked closely with the mm -hmm. Jesuits. Educated by those two. As much as we are going to uh, talk about the Catholic Church... We, just, we still respect the Jesuits. We still respect some of the priests. Absolutely. I, I mean, Jesuits are life. People for others, man. People for others. What Pope Francis? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. anyway. Sister Margaret Ann was the fourth of nine children born to Frank and Catherine Paul in Edgerton, Ohio. Wow. In 1908. 
Her family was devout Catholics, and she was not the first in her family to join the church. She mm-hmm. had several cousins who went on to join the convent and become Sisters of Mercy as well. And her younger sister would eventually join. Aww. At the young age of 19, she packed her bags and threw them in the family Buick and drove with her sisters to Our Lady of the Pines Convent in Fremont, Ohio, mm-hmm. where they said goodbye. And she began her initial year of study and never looked back. Okay. And Mm. I think that this is just a very sweet little note. When her family got home from dropping her off at the convent, they all found specific little wrapped gifts with little notes for each one. Because as she's joining the sisterhood, she can't keep a lot of her things. So she gave them away very specifically with little notes to each member of her family. Oh my gosh, that's so sweet. What a sweet person. She sounds like a very sweet person. Yeah. In addition to devoting her life to the church, she, like many sisters of mercy, devoted herself to nursing and hospital care. Mm-hmm. Again, a very popular profession for nuns, especially for sisters of mercy. Absolutely. Yeah. Long nursing tradition within this organization. She was a registered nurse and she was a badass. Yeah, sounds like it. Not only was she a nurse, she went on to become the director of a nursing school the administrator of St. Charles Hospital in Oregon and the administrator of Mercy Hospital in Tiffin, Ohio. Good for her. So she's a boss. She is a boss. She was known throughout her entire life as being very precise and very demanding. She Mm. lived a very humble and principled life and expected the other sisters and the priests to do the same. Mm. Very particular woman. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. And that really sounds like no it. No shrinking violets here. Yeah, love that too. It, it sounds very much the way that my parents talk about the nuns that they grew up with. It, <laughs> they yeah. were slightly terrified of them. They probably had reason to be. But yeah. Oh, yeah. I think there's something very specific about that generation of nuns because my mom would tell you the same thing. Sister Paul was described as old school. Um, everything done mm. to its highest, utmost degree. Yes. However, by the late 70s, following that very successful career, she was starting to have trouble Mm. with her hearing, and she was Mm. starting to consider retirement. Gotcha. But, like many people, just not good at retiring. Yep. Maybe we semi-retire, maybe we, you know, cut back, but you're never really Really done. done. So rather... Rather than retiring, Sister Margaret Ann took a lighter job assignment as the caretaker of St. Joseph's Chapel, the small chapel inside of Mercy Hospital in Toledo. Gotcha. So if you've ever been to a Catholic hospital, there is usually Mm -hmm. a, typically a pretty small, just a couple of pews somewhere in the hospital. There's always a priest there. Mm -hmm. There are always nuns there. In the 70s and 80s, these were a lot bigger deal. Yeah, definitely, I'm sure. Any more Catholic hospitals are kind of indistinguishable from typical hospitals. Not around here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'm speaking in Chicago. Okay. Speak for yourself, city girl. (laughs) I gave birth literally staring at a crucifix. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. Kept my focus during contractions. (laughs) That's probably the last thing I want to see. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm sure it made your mother proud. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't even think she knows that until this episode comes out. So. <laughs> <laughs> Mercy hospitals, there were several of them, 100% run by by the church at this point. So although it was a smaller job, it was still no small job. Yeah. Her job was to clean and maintain the chapels, ensuring that everything was ready for service. All patrons had access to what they needed. All the sacraments were ready, the vestments, all of that. And she did this just like she did everything else with precision and pride. Mm-hmm. Until... The morning of April 5th, 1980. So this happens to be Holy Saturday. So the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It also was the day before her 72nd birthday. Aww. Sister Paul wakes up at 5 a.m. on Holy Saturday, prepares herself for the day, and heads to the dining hall of the hospital where she grabs a tray and takes that to a storage closet where she loads the tray up with cleaning supplies and heads toward the chapel. Mm. She sets the supplies on a chapel pew where she then returns to the dining hall for a quick breakfast. By 6.45 a.m., she says goodbye to the cafeteria workers and tells them that she's headed back to the chapel to prepare the altar for the Easter weekend services. And she disappears quietly Mm. down the hallway. Around 8 a.m., another young nun, Sister Madeline Marie, walks into the chapel to continue on in her duties. She Mm -hmm. sees an older nun kneeling silently in prayer in the front row. Sister Madeline sees some folded linens in the hallway, picks them up, and places them on a pew. She then walks down the aisle toward the altar, but quickly pauses and says, Oh, I think I need to make a phone call before I start my duties for the day. So she turns out of the chapel and turns down a small hallway into the sacristy, which is a small room next to the chapel that holds all the vestments and everything for the day. Mm-hmm. Next to this to the sacristy, there's also a payphone, which is where she was going to make a phone call. Mm. Sacristies are a varying kind of ornateness. The one in this hospital yeah. in particular is not as it's it is a closet. Um, yeah. So it's nothing ornate, nothing crazy. As she goes to grab the phone, she notices in the sacristy that one of the doors is locked and the other one is slightly hanging open with a skeleton key sitting inside of the lock. So she starts to walk toward the sacristy. The door starts to open a little bit and Sister Madeline looks down to see Sister Paul's body covered in stab <gasps> wounds all across the neck and the torso. Oh, my gosh. So it wasn't her praying in the chapel. Oh, my gosh. I thought we were about to walk up on her, like, slumped over. That was just a nun in the chapel. Wow. So if that nun had gone back into the sacristy, she would have been the one to discover her. That nun was just doing her morning prayers with no idea what had happened. Gotcha. Oh, okay. You took me for a little bit of a ride there. (laughs) Sorry. No, I like it. comes back, but... (laughs) Does she? Okay. I don't like it. You know what I mean. I I like the ride. Um, Wow. I was struck while you were saying that about the door because, like, I'm assuming – I feel a little bit of myself in Sister Paul, just the – I'm not quite 
as particular, but just the particularness. Mm -hmm. So I have to assume she has a very consistent morning routine. 100%. And I have to assume that, like, she, like me, probably has that consistent morning routine down to, like, a very specific timing. Like, I know on a work morning that I'm going to arrive at Starbucks sometime between 8.15 and 8.30. She knows when she's going to be in the cafeteria. She knows when she's going to grab this or that. So I'm guessing that Sister Madeline knew that too coming into work after her and would have been like why is this door open because sister paul would not do that the way that this played in my head as i was researching is that these nuns work like cogs in a clock they know who's mm-hmm. coming when they're coming all based on the church's calendar and the church's clock yeah totally this day she did wake up actually slightly later than she normally would Mm. because the holy saturday services were slightly later than they would be on an easter sunday got it okay but at the same time everybody knew that and yeah everybody knew sister margaret ann and how exacting and precise she was yeah and she probably still had, like, a flow of things she was going to oh, do, yeah. right? Like, get the stuff, then go get breakfast. She's not going to probably swap no. that, you know, or no. whatever. Gosh, that's what a chilling thing to discover. How horrifying mm-hmm. for Sister Madeline. Mm-hmm. And I want to mm-hmm. describe the scene a little bit because what we see at the scene becomes important. When she looks down, she sees Sister Margaret Ann's body, like I said, covered in the stab wounds and the torso. Her body had also been posed. Oh. So imagine kind of this posing. She had her arms tightly down by her side, very rigid. Okay. With her legs outstretched and flat against the floor and opened wide. Mm. She had been partially disrobed with her girdle and underwear pulled down and her dressing pulled up. Ugh. She Ugh. had her personal crucifix folded neatly on her chest. Wow. So very posed. Very posed. The coroner would verify that she was not sexually assaulted. Interesting. So the thought became that she was simply posed for humiliation. That's what I was just going to mm-hmm. say. Yeah, it's a humiliation. They counted 30... In some places I saw 31, in some places I saw 32 stab wounds. Either way, it's a lot. And signs of strangulation. Wow. There was evidence that she had been stabbed through an altar cloth that was found on her arm nearby. So basically imagine you're holding an altar cloth across like your forearm mm-hmm. that had been stabbed yeah. through. Okay. So that maybe was where she was ambushed or where she was stabbed first. Mm-hmm. Because she, if she was still holding something, that would mean she was probably still unaware. Mm-hmm. Now, okay. interestingly, like I said, there are either 31 or 32 stab wounds. They would say that there was a series of stab wounds in the shape of an upside-down cross. Whoa. That's messed yes. up. Okay. I'm also just like I'm struck by the location Mm -hmm. because the sacristy, you know, like sometimes they look like closet. Sometimes they look like crazy, Mm -hmm. like gilded, ornate. You know, you get the whole range. But whatever they look like, they're definitely considered to be a sacred space. Sacristy shares a root word Mm -hmm. with sacred. So it's not as though this is just like a random spot. Like everything about that feels deliberate to me. Very few people would have had keys and access to this space. It's a semi-private place. Yeah. 
but it's a place where you wouldn't really go. There was a phone there, but the phone was really mostly for the clergy. Interesting. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not like you can just, like, walk into a sacristy, like, as a person going to church. That's for priests, nuns, altar people. Yeah. So, upon seeing this scene, Sister Marie screams and stumbles and kind of stumbles herself back into the chapel where she is heard Mm -hmm. by the older nun that was praying up front, Sister Philip. Mm. Sister Philip runs towards Sister Marie, kind of just grabs her and shakes her to get an answer. What's going on? What's going on? Turns her head and sees the scene inside of the sacristy. Wow. Sister Philip has the hospital call a Mr. Swift code to alert to emergency personnel to the scene. Now, most mm. hospitals, businesses, anything will have a code like this. It's a code word that yeah. all employees will know, but they know mm-hmm. what it means. Yeah. The Mr. Swift code alerted all the administration, all of security and emergency doctors to the scene inside of the chapel. Mm. The administrator and CEO of Mercy Hospital was Sister Phyllis Ann at the time. She also rushes to the scene and immediately grabs and starts to revive Sister Margaret. Because mm. all of these nuns are trained nurses. Yeah. Around this time, like I said, it's about 8 a.m. Officers Dan Dieter and Dave Davidson, um, who are working on the hospital, they're the overnight police shift at the hospital. They work the 12 a.m. to 8 a.m. shift in the hospital. So if you imagine Mm. they are sitting in the cafeteria, watching the clock, waiting for the clock to get out and for their people to come take them off. Yeah. They get the call not knowing what it was. All they know is it's a Mr. Swift code. Jeez. (laughs) They had just seen Sister Margaret Ann. Just Mm. hours before having her breakfast like everybody else. Yeah. So they hear the Mr. Swift code, and they have their walkie-talkies, and they say a nun died in the chapel. First, they assume that it was just a heart attack. One of the elderly nuns had a heart attack or something like right. that. And they kind of take their time in responding and getting down to the chapel. By the time that they arrived, the body was already going cold and clammy. And mm. the sisters had pulled her dress down to preserve her modesty by this point, in addition to trying to revive her. Yeah understandable move but it's still yeah yeah, it's tough because it's messing with a crime scene there's about to be a lot of people at this crime scene because you're in a hospital and the first thing anybody wants to do is try to save that person is help yeah for sure especially these are her sisters yeah and i feel like you've heard that i've heard that before like that interplay between law enforcement and first responders right i feel like i've looked into cases before where there's been some like anger on behalf of law enforcement towards medical professionals for trying to interfere and help with a crime scene Mm -hmm. but then it's like no it's a crime scene you got to stop but like if it's medical personnel your one and only job is to try to help that person and they don't know how long she had been there she was last seen at 6 45 it's 8 a.m now so by the time Detectives Dieter and Davidson arrive. A swath of other doctors had arrived as well. Technicians, a cart is rolled out to the scene. But by the time they get there and they see the amount of blood, Officer Davidson 
basically just waves them all away and says, we've got a murder. Yeah. Like, he sees this scene. He, he knows. knows exactly what is happening here. Oh, man. So the officers push away all the medical per- personnel to try to preserve the scene as much as they could by that point. And as they're leaving, the first of two chapel priests arrives at the scene. Mm. Father Schwiteki was a well-known priest at the hospital. He was known for his outgoing personality, his large self, and his large personality. (laughs) His joviality and his slightly annoying extroversion. (laughs) I love it. But when he sees the scene, he turns absolutely white in shock. Mm. He kind of stops. He pauses for a moment. He knows Sister Margaret Ant. He, yeah. he's seen her at the hospital. The two have worked together closely. He kneels down as he's kind of fighting back tears, checking on her. He reaches into a robe, mm. pulls out a bottle of anointing oil, and performs the last rites in Margaret Ann there at the scene. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. After Father Schwiteki performs rites on sister margaret and they clear the scene and barricade off the chapel to avoid any further contamination because there's already a ton at this point Mm. yeah quick interviews are performed at the scene by davidson and dieter by interviewing the nuns that were there the first responders anybody who might have seen her just trying to get those last few moments of did you see sister margaret did you see sister margaret um Mm. But within another 10 minutes of that Mr. Swift call, five more police arrive at the scene. So all of that happened in less than 10 minutes. Okay. Um, There were a lot of police by Mercy Hospital. It was not the best. It was not the best. (laughs) Not the best area. So they were like ready to go. One of those police officers that arrives at the scene is Sergeant Arthur Marks, the lead detective. Marks was known as a cop's cop and a bulldog and a lot of other cliches. Oh, my. I forgot to mention, some of the sources for this episode include a lot of articles from the Toledo Blade, specifically from an author named David Yonke, who... Oh! Do you know him? I don't know anything about this case, and I, like, didn't look into it for the purpose of being surprised for your sake, but I did see that he wrote a book about it. Yes, he wrote the book Sin, Shame, and Secrets, and... Got it. Good information. Okay. Could have used an editor. Just going to say. Mm. A lot of cliches. There's a lot of dialogue that I don't believe. <laughs> because it's so 80s yeah. cop drama. And that is so the case when we're reading books about a lot of cases, I feel like. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Marx was a bulldog. Cops cop. Yeah. Man the <laughs> Basically. <laughs> so... As Marx arrives as the lead detective on this case, um, Dieter and Davidson give him a rundown of the situation. What they saw, Mm. what actions they had taken so far, who they had spoken to, whatever. They then get a call on the radio about a suspicious man at the Greyhound station. Hmm. And Marx quickly sends Dieter and Davidson off to take care of this man at the Greyhound station. Okay. Both of them found this really odd at the time. That they were sent that off? That they were sent off so quickly. Like, within a few minutes of Marks arriving at the scene. Mm. Thinking, one, there's always a weird guy at the Greyhound station. 
always. And especially the Toledo one. I, I have been to that Greyhound station and that is a fact. Me too. But because they're like, we we were the first down the scene. Don't you want us to like stay here and mm. debrief and work yeah. on the evidence? And Marks was like, no, nah, leave. He doesn't need that. He's a bulldog. He's a bulldog. He's a cop's cap. He's a maverick. Davidson is going to become kind of an important figure um, mm. throughout the lifespan of this case because after he retires and he's no longer worried about retaliation or, you know, proper channels, mm. yeah, um, he's going to go buck wild on this case. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm excited. Because so, very quickly, Davidson is like, I smell a cover-up. Mm. He doesn't like the smell of this in the very, very beginning. Okay, that's interesting then. Yes. Now, it's important to note that Davidson's primary shift at this time, every night, he worked the night shift at Mercy Hospital. Mm. He heard people talking about this case every single night. And of course you would, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. You'd never stop talking about it. Never. Well, the people in Toledo do. Um, mm. Oh, well. There's a reason I think I never heard about this case before. Gotcha. They hushed it all the way down. They hushed this case. Got it. Okay. But David's work at the hospital, he would hear doctors and nurse and technicians and reception and everything gossiping, gossiping about this case. And Mm. everyone he heard talking about it said one thing. It was the priest. Oh, wow. Okay. I want to revisit the body and the crime scene before we totally move on. Me too, because I have a question about that. Okay, good. I'm going to go over this stuff, and let's see if it answers your question. Okay. All right. So, investigation of the body showed that there were no visible signs of a struggle and no defensive wounds. Hmm. The rest of the sacristy was completely ordinary and spotless. Mm. The only thing out of place was a single phone on a side table that had been gently placed on the floor with altar cloths placed on that table. Hmm. The detectives assumed Sister Margaret Ann must have just moved those to place some things here. Mm -hmm. And nothing was actually out of, like, nothing was disheveled in the sacristy. Okay. Searches gathered a lot of partial prints but none with enough points to match any person. Okay. Now, remember, as I said, the body was laid out and stretched out. Yes. With her legs opened and her arms rigid by her side in the way that mm-hmm. there's no way you fell that way. Right, right. It was also laid out in the very center of the room. Oh, interesting. There was a sizable pool of blood about nine inches in diameter beneath her head. Okay. Her glasses had been knocked off and were laying near her hand with smudges on the blood and the lens. Hmm. There were stab wounds to varying degrees in depth, including small punctures to her neck and her face. Ugh. Now, some people would say that there was a cross in blood on her forehead. That Mm -hmm. seems to be myth. It seemed okay. to be that there was, it was simply blood splatter. Got it. Okay. The altar cloth, like I mentioned, was stretched across her right forearm with puncture marks mm-hmm. with blood seeping through it. Okay. Now, those puncture marks in the altar cloth 
become an important piece of forensic evidence Mm. because investigators were able to use the pattern of the stab wounds and the puncture mark to identify what type of instrument was used. Oh, okay. That's good. They were able to say that this was a very sharp, long blade, but the blade itself was not flat. The blade had to have some kind of diamond or kite shape to it. That's weird. Whatever it was, it wasn't a typical knife, and that was important. That that was something that they could trace. Almost like an arrowhead kind of shape is like yes. what I'm yes. sort of picturing in my head. Okay. Yes. So if you think about this, the, the cut that it would have made would be kind of a diamond shape. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So what are your questions? What questions do you have left? Um, well, one of my questions was just kind of a clarifying question. People came in to try to offer assistance just for clarity's sake like when she was found by sister madeline people rushed in to offer assistance so she was no longer in the position in which she was posed when police got there correct they had not moved her body okay they just fixed her clothes they only fixed her clothing yes so her girdle was still at her one of her ankles but her dress had been pulled down Okay, gotcha. So to get that piece of evidence, we would be relying on Sister Madeline's testimony to tell us, or her recollection to tell us what the the matter of the clothes was in. Sister Madeline, Sister Philip, and Sister Phyllis. Okay, so all three of them. Yes, because they were the ones that tried to offer the assistance. Yeah, because Sister nobody touched her until Sister Phyllis. Gotcha. Okay, so just making sure that like. There's, like, a lot of consistency in that. Because I was trying to find some crime scene photos, and I, on a cursory Google, I couldn't find any. But I, have, I haven't I have found um, any. I don't think that the church or the Sisters of Mercy have allowed those out. Understandably. Yeah. So that's my, way, my main question. And then this, uh, the potential signs of strangulation, do we know what those signs were? There were handprints found or, like, impressions of handprints on her neck. Got it. Okay. But that was not probably the cause of death. I want to double check what the coroner said was her final cause of death. Yeah, they said that the the stabbing was the cause of death. But the theory okay. was that she was grabbed from behind and then stabbed. Mm-hmm. That they okay. they that they likely grabbed her and surprised her from behind and then she was stabbed. Okay. That was my third question was if there were specifically handprints like sometimes you can see mm-hmm. If they're grabbing from the front or grabbing from behind because of where fingers might lay. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, because everything looked like made it look like an ambush as far as the state of her. Yeah. Like not having any defensive wounds and things like that. So I was like, I wonder what the if it was like a string tied around or what that particularly looked like. It according to the coroner's report, it was handprints around the neck that had come from behind. Yes. Got it. OK. okay. <sighs> Those are my questions for now. For now. I'm sure you'll have many, many For now. more. Probably. Yes. Following the coroner's investigation and full medical examination, Sister Margaret Ann's body was released to be laid to rest near her childhood home in Fremont, Ohio. Mm. The chief celebrant at her funeral was Father Gerald Robinson, mm. a fellow priest from Mercy Hospital, with an additional homily given by Father Schwatecki. Who would, in the homily, go on to say that she had suffered a violent, tragic, traumatic death. A death not only blasphemous, but patently absurd. Wow. It stirs up within us a deep repugnance of death. What does it all mean? Mm. 
She was laid to rest at Our Lady of the Pine Cemetery in Fremont, Ohio, in a plot dedicated to the Sisters of Mercy. So shortly after everything kind of cleared up from the scene, Sister Phyllis, um, remember, who is our hospital administrator, mm-hmm. very quickly, these sisters are on point, very yes. quickly gathered personnel data for 1,400 hospital employees and wow. shoved them at Sergeant Marks saying, here's everyone Dang. in the hospital. Go talk to him. Good for her. <laughs> I love that. Oh, oh, I love it. They cared so much to Good. figure out what happened to her. That's awesome. Over the next three weeks, the police would interview nearly 600 people. Hmm. Many of them reported seeing nothing. Most of them reported seeing nothing. Yeah. But two technicians... A janitor and a receptionist were able to give something. Okay. All four of them said that they recalled hearing frantic footsteps running out from the chapel down a walkway that led to the clergy's dormitory. Hmm. One of the technicians specifically reported seeing a man in clerical garb, about five foot six, five foot seven, thin, about thirty-five to forty, running away from the chapel. Interesting. Now, with Father Schwatecki known to be in the cafeteria at the time of the killing, that mm-hmm. only left our secondary priest, Father Gerald Robinson. Oh. Interesting. So he was the one that presided over the funeral. Yes. Okay. Was Did he match the description? Yes. Ah. Okay. Father Robinson was a younger priest at the hospital. He had been floating around. Um, I'm going to get into a little bit of his story right now. Okay. Because police were very reluctant to interview or pursue him at well, all. Well, sure, yeah. And I want to tell you why. So, yeah. as I had mentioned, Toledo is a city of immigrants. Yes. In particular, we're talking about Polish immigrants. Mm-hmm. Now, the late 19th century to 20th century... A lot of Eastern European, a lot of Slavic immigrants followed the train mm-hmm. lines through the Rust Belt, getting all their factory work. Toledo yeah. is well-known glass manufacturer, car parts manufacturer. Yes, the glass city. The glass city. Hi, Libby Glass Factory. Mm-hmm. I know your outlet well. <laughs> Hi, grandparents and great-grandparents. Thank you. Indeed. Yes. Um, the Polish particularly settled in a region called Kuszwanz. Mm. where the church was the center of everything. Yeah. There were a few Catholic schools and churches that fed the police department, that fed the schools, that fed everything. Right. And this area could be pretty insular. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the people retained the Polish language. They had their own newspapers, their own businesses. Father Gerald, Ro- or Gerald Robinson, before he becomes father, mm. was born in the Kuschwanz area. His mother, Mary Seja, or Balbina, mm. she went by Balbina, cute, was well known for her strictness and her pride, mm. and apparently are a little intertwined with my family line. Oh. A little intertwined. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks, mom's genealogy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> interesting. She admitted okay. this to me freely, so. Okay. But 
Robinson was put onto the path to priesthood by Balbina at a pretty young age. Mm. And apparently Balbina would tell anyone and everyone that would listen that her son was going to be a priest. Yeah, I could totally see that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a big point of pride. Yeah. Robinson was described as quiet, humble, quiet, and quiet. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. So basically, we know nothing about his personality. We know nothing about his personality other than that he was quiet. Okay. He seemed to have some of the same rigidity as Bobina, but a little bit more like anxiety about it. Mm. Like a little anxiety about following the rules, a little anxiety about doing things right. Sure. Some people, though, would say as he got older that that anxiety fell off and his adherence to his duties and his preaching became a little half-hearted. People would complain about this, including Sister Margaret Ann. Oh, really? Sister Margaret Ann reportedly told a housekeeper on Good Friday, so the day before her murder, regarding his Good Friday sermon... Basically that it wasn't good enough. Really? She broke down in tears at how half-hearted this was. And she asked this housekeeper, why did they cheat God out of what was his? Wow. That's a pretty hefty criticism. I mean, it's an important day in the Catholic calendar, that's for sure. But wowzers. But essentially to say, God deserves better than what you gave him. Yeah. Dang. Robinson, in turn, did not love Sister Margaret Ann. Mm. He reportedly said that she was too bossy and demanding and she was too old school. And all of that said, Robinson was otherwise well-liked in the area. In very large part, simply because he was so ingrained in the Polish community. Yeah. At a time, we're talking about 1980 here, where kind of the ethnic community was starting to change a little bit. Yeah. Those first generation families are starting to move out, starting to have families of their own, starting to Americanize quite a bit more. Right. Becoming more like second, third, fourth generation families. Yeah. Yeah. But Robinson kept up a lot of those Polish traditions. He still gave mass in Polish. Mm. And he presided over a lot of these family affairs. He was apparently loved by the older generation. Interesting. Even though he half-assed the Good Friday Mass. Okay. I was a little shocked by that. But, but he, it means a lot when somebody is from your own community, you know? If they were the person that baptized your child, that married your child, that mm-hmm. did their confirmations, this, that, and the other, the Catholic Church yeah. was probably the first place you went after you immigrated. Oh, yeah. And then you see them when you're at the hospital sick, and maybe they gave last rites to your grandma or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... The priests are the face of the Catholic Church. The nuns are very much in the background. Yes. The priests were also very much, and the Catholic Church was also very much ingrained in the police in the area. Mm -hmm. Some of the top dogs of the police union were Catholic and equally ingrained in the Catholic community. In that book by David Yonke, Sin, Shame, and Secrets, he interviews Bill Gray, a retired police officer from Toledo who says this you took care of the catholic church if you were a jewish rabbi a baptist minister or an episcopalian you're shit out of luck no but the police had to take care of the priests it was an absolute in toledo well okay that's uh pretty straightforward 
And it was said that these protective tendencies weren't even off the record or implied, but they were on the books. Interesting. I'd want to see those books. And this went everything from small things like not writing park it, parking tickets during Sunday Mass mm. to a specific 1960 scandal in which a complaint of molestation against a priest was addressed only in collaboration and only in lockstep with the church. Wow. Police told the church, you take care of Father Pinter or we have to arrest him. Hmm. And the church moved that priest with multiple allegations of child molestation simply to another church and the investigation was buried. Yeah, definitely a story that has been repeated several times. Several, several times. times. And this, again, it's not just the church itself. It's the police within the church. Mm -hmm. And if you think about these cultural and these community systems, they build each other, right? Yes. Oh, big time. And they feed each other and there's a constant feedback loop and the lines are just going to be so blurred between those things. And that's what happens when police go to interview Father Robinson. Got it. Like I said, they did this very reluctantly. Yeah. When he was finally brought in. Actually, they didn't even bring him in initially. Um, They interviewed him initially in his dormitory. Mm. So the priests at Mercy Hospital lived within the the hospital. They had just a small Mm -hmm. set of, like, little two-room dormitories. Police investigated him in that dormitory. Asked him about his whereabouts on the day of the murder, what was going on. Robinson claimed that he was in his residence at the time of the murder. He was taking a shower. And that was all he had to say about it. Okay. But police asked if they could search his room for any evidence. This was about three Mm -hmm. weeks after the murder. Okay. Three weeks. Good night. Wow. Um, I wonder if he had time to hide anything. Oh, maybe. Or clean things. Right. Jeez. So... Father Robinson says, sure, I have patients to tend to. Have at it. Mm. He allows police to search his residence um, while he tended to his duties. And police did investigate and search the space. They find very little at first. It's a priest's residence. Very humble belongings. Vestments. It should. It's supposed to be. It's supposed to be. (laughs) Supposed to be about as quiet as quiet can be. They find his, you know, same couple of outfits, Oxford shoes, books. But the more they dig, they finally find one little souvenir. Okay. They find a long saber-shaped dagger. Interesting. About nine inches long with a diamond-shaped blade and a slight curve at the end. Oh, boy. Okay. On the handle, there's a small medallion with a wax seal Hmm. from the Washington, D.C. Wax Museum. Interesting. Random. Okay. A a little trinket from a Boy Scout trip. So literally a souvenir. Okay. Literally a souvenir. Hmm. Upon investigation, they found it was supposedly a letter opener. Hmm. Well, wax, a wax seal should catch blood pretty good. Mm, That's what Sergeant Like it would be hard to clean that. That is ah, exactly okay. what Sergeant Marks thought. He said, hey, <laughs> you're a cap's cap. I'm more like a French bulldog, really. But. 
Sergeant Marks bags it, takes it to the evidence room for testing, mm. where it had clearly been cleaned. But when they are able to remove the medallion, so you think it's a souvenir. It's not that well made, right? Right. Yeah. The evidence technicians pluck off that wax medallion and they are finally able to find traces of blood hidden underneath the wax seal. Yeah. Unfortunately, well, there was enough to get trace evidence. There is not enough for confirmation tests. Mm, Okay. And it's the 80s, so the best we're going to do is typing not so much like a full dna profile anyway that's all we're gonna get dna doesn't even exist yet i mean it's a baby but we gotta wait until 86 yeah so yeah yeah and in toledo ohio i don't know (laughs) yeah 96 maybe (laughs) but that blood test evidence was enough to bring father robinson in for questioning Mm, okay so they book Robinson down against a lot of public pressure. A lot of people were mad that they were taking a priest into the police station. Yeah, except for all the hospital employees that are saying, it's the priest, it's the priest. The gossip in Toledo is the craziest shit I've ever heard. Oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Tight-knit communities, man. Mm-hmm. So Robinson's taken into the police station for formal questioning and a polygraph test. Mm-hmm. On that polygraph test, he repeated that he was in his room at the time of the murder, that he had no idea of it until he heard the call. He went down as soon as he could, blah, blah, blah. They also asked him how he felt about Sister Margaret Ann. Hmm. And interesting when you're being investigated for murder that your response is, well, she had a dominant personality. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I could see if you're anxious or, like, not super well-spoken, that feeling like a diplomatic way of saying, of trying to be honest and saying you didn't like somebody. Yeah. You know? But. I can see it. It's it's an interesting response. It's an interesting choice of words. Yeah. His polygraph results showed that deception was indicated on questions related to the murder. Mm. Okay. Well, nobody liked hearing that very much. Right. Including Sister Phyllis, the hospital administrator. Oh, is that right? Sister Phyllis was like, uh-uh, no. He was under really? stress. She's like, he was under stress. He could not have done this. You interview him again. There's wow. no way. She was like, he, he's stressed. He's grieving. This, that, and the other. Do a second okay, polygraph. Okay, so she's on his side. That's interesting. I was not expecting that at all. I thought, You thought that. Sister I Phyllis was, like, this. on our team get him yeah that's what i really thought that is so interesting she wanted a second polygraph so police grant a second polygraph marks does the second polygraph along with another detective named kina Mm. about an hour into the second polygraph so they're going through their like control questions they're going through all of this stuff mark steps out to grab more paper to make more notes on real quick steps out grab paper Mm-hmm. When he returns, Kina is sitting outside of the polygraph room, just by himself. Mm. Well, Robinson is still fucking inside. Mark sees this and he's like, what the fuck? Interesting. You left yeah. Robinson in there alone? 
Like, you know better than this. Yeah. And Kina's like, "Uh uh-uh, I got kicked out. What? Kina was in the middle of the polygraph, confronted by deputy deputy chief. Deputy? (laughs) Did I say, I don't know what I just said. You just said. (laughs) What did I say? Deputy. (laughs) Deputy. That should be somebody's title, though. Like, no joke. (laughs) Deputy. Uh, okay we're okay okay. i'm okay so deputy chief vetter of the toledo police department (laughs) monsignor jerome schmidt a powerful cleric in the diocese yeah and toledo attorney henry herschel oh walked in kicked kina out spent five minutes in there with robinson and the Four of them came out of the room together and said, this interview is over. Goodbye. Whoa. That is so dirty. And that's where the investigation stopped. Nuh-uh. That's where this entire investigation stopped. Oh, that is so blatantly just not okay. I don't have time to go into it. Monsignor Schmidt, dirty. Messed up. Yeah. Just the corruption. You can smell the corruption. I feel like I can smell the corruption from here, 200 miles away from Toledo. Mm-hmm. It's just like wafting through my window. Yep. Detectives were so taken off up. the case, and the case died. Wow. And so this is three weeks in. So three weeks, and we're just done. Yep. They said that they had Jeez. people on it. They said that they were investigating it. But according to all right. the records and all the reporting. Mm. Yeah. It's all air quotes. It's not really happening. Yep. Jeez. That's depressing. Welcome back, Midwretcheder friends. You didn't know that you were gone, did you? Yeah, welcome back, back from the rabbit hole. I once again had computer problems little i never named this computer which is probably why it's mad at me but little computy over here is uh mm. <laughs> <laughs> creative little computy over here is having a hard time so we're gonna give him try to give him one last good yeah. go and uh we just had to replace our sump pump so i really don't want to have to buy another one well it's annoying but you know what that does mean for our story is that perhaps there was a little bit of a, was there a suspenseful, suspenseful moment? moment. And then mm-hmm. we get to come back in and everything will start to pivot, right? We dropped you guys off mm-hmm. unknowingly right when the case got dropped by the Toledo police. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. So this is a natural adjustment point. Just stick with me, guys. We are independent Mm -hmm. podcasters, and we are trying our best. So when I unknowingly dropped you, the Toledo Police Department had just dropped the case against Gerald Robinson, and he was carted off by the Monsignor, a word that I just like to say and am probably saying incorrectly. And that was kind of like where that investigation ended for the time being. 
The city of Toledo was very upset. The Catholic Church was going through some stuff. Mm-hmm. But of course, that's not where our story ends. So like I often do, I'm going to ask you to put Gerald Robinson onto a little shelf. Gross. I don't want him on a shelf in my house. Just like a little elf on a shelf. A little priest on a shelf. <laughs> priest on a... Are you trying to find a word? I'm just trying really hard to come up with a... Yeah, I am. Deacon on a... Mm-hmm. Beacon. That doesn't work. Nothing rhymes with priest, really. Preacher on a bleacher? Ooh, that's good. That's good. Anyway, we're going to put Gerald Robinson on a shelf. I promise we will come back mm-hmm. to him. Anyway, I will bring it all back together. But there's a little bit of a parallel story that's going to happen here. We're staying in Toledo and we're staying with the Catholic Church, but we're going to flash forward a little bit to 1985. And in 1985, a woman named Barbara Blaine comes forward and reports to the Oblates, which are a Franciscan order of of priests. Slightly different, the Catholic Church is kind of divided into different orders of priests. There's the Jesuits, Mm -hmm. the Franciscans. There's others that I can't come to mind right now. All kinds of them. Capuchins. Yeah. Holy Cross. (laughs) Yeah. They're They're all all over the place. So Barbara Blaine comes forward and reports to the Oblates that a priest named Father Chester Warren had abused her throughout her childhood and adolescence. Mm. She reports to this board that she had been abused beginning in 1969 when she was 13 years old and continuing through her time until she graduated high school. Jeez. That's a long time to go through That's a really long time. Five just continued years. And what she brought forward to the church, her accusations against Chester Warren included that he would physically and sexually abuse her, that he told her because of this abuse, she was holier than other children. She would also tell them that Chester Warren told her that no one would believe her if she did tell. He was a priest. He had the power. And no one was going to believe what she said against him. Disgusting. He also forced her to go to another church to confess her mortal sin after he would abuse her. As in, like, she would have to get on her bike and ride to another church to confess to another priest after being abused. Yeah, it's so insanely manipulative. It's just like it's it's got the hallmarks of like classic grooming and then that added edge of I don't know. I mean every abuse dynamic is really about a power mm-hmm. dynamic in a lot of ways, right? But it's such a just such a specific kind of power dynamic that goes on there, you know? It, it's such a manipulation and it's such like a just a sadistic kind of thing to make somebody confess their sin when you are the one that hurt them to an yeah. and confessing to another priest yeah i mean somebody heard yeah that. it yeah. hurts me to know that somebody heard that mm-hmm. so i want to talk a little bit about chester warren he was a priest but i'm not going to use the title of father because i don't think he deserves it right now yeah no 
Warren had a history in Toledo. So he was ordained on the East Coast where he was from. He was ordained in 1957. And he came to Toledo from where he worked at Father Judge High School in 1960. He first served in Toledo at St. Pius and then went on to work at St. Francis de Sales in All Boys High School, an All Boys Catholic school where he lived and served as a teacher. So St. Francis was um, where my family sent their boys. Um, So I asked my dad about this case, just curious if he knew anything. And almost immediately when I mentioned Chester Warren, he was like, oh, yeah, he's like Chet, Chet the Jet. That's what we called him before we knew. And then when we knew, he immediately became Chester Molester. Wow. And so my both my parents went to school in the 60s and 70s. Barbara mm-hmm. Blaine did not come forward until 1985. Wow. So that means that there was a period where people knew. Where people yeah. were calling him this. Yeah. And that, that means for years, probably decade, at least a decade. Yeah, because she's like a few years older than our parents, so she would have only been like probably a couple of years ahead of your dad in high school. They wouldn't have gone to the same school, but like he would have been Mm -hmm. at St. Francis at the same time that these things were happening. It was pretty well known that he was abusive, What or at least Mm -hmm. rumored. It was known that people were uncomfortable around him. He was known to have a temper. He was known to get aggressive with kids in the high school. Although I will say, like, at the time, a lot of priests and a lot of teachers in Catholic schools were known to get at least physically aggressive with kids. Mm -hmm. Like, that was kind of the cultural norm at the time. Slapping your hand with a ruler, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Like, you hear those stories from... From your parents that are Catholic educated. Smacking you upside yeah. the head. Mine grabbing too, your arm. Same stories. Yeah. But I also know Warren seemed to take it a little bit extra. To the point that parents would even say yeah. that he crossed a line. Parents even noticed. And parents who, again, mm. were so parents ingrained within this community. Who wouldn't otherwise ever say anything against the church. Ever say anything against a priest. The priests were the highest mm-hmm. authority to them. Even they were like... That's crossing a line, dude. Right. Yeah. But as far as the sexual abuse went, again, it seems the impression that I got was amongst the students, it was kind of a known unknown. It was a rumor. It was a gossip. But there was no, no one ever came forward and admitted Mm. it. If they did, it was kept under the table. Yeah. Yeah. Like you wouldn't know if somebody came forward anyway, necessarily. And what we will find out is that there were a number of complaints against him during this time in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s that the mm. church did actively conceal. They settled out of court. They dealt with it within the families. Um, when Barbara Blaine first came forward, the Oblate said that there was nothing that they could do, that there were no other complaints against Chester Warren, that they had no idea what she was talking about. There was no evidence to this. With further investigation and mm. when this finally would all come out, they found evidence that, yes, the church knew. Yes, the church was moving him around. Yes, the church was burying this evidence. 
Wow. I'm glad they figured it out later, but it's disappointing that it was later. You know what I mean? Yeah, because until Barbara Blaine came forward in 1985, everything was was just dealt with in the family, dealt with Mm -hmm. quietly. But she was the one, one of the first people, at least in the Toledo area, that really pushed forward demanding that the church do something actively about this, to admit to it, to remove Warren. In 1989, Barbara Blaine started the Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, Mm -hmm. or SNAP. SNAP is still an active organization with really amazing resources for victims of clerical abuse. Um, They do a lot of good media coverage, a lot of advocacy work, a lot of educational resources. So go visit that because Barbara is still active and doing a lot of this work. I spent some time on that site the other night after your computer went down, and it it is... Very, very full of resources and super interesting. Yeah. And obviously very important work. Very important work. And they are not Mm -hmm. shy. Like, I really have to applaud this woman. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that just um, in talking to some people, they told me that one of the big things that helped Barbara come forward and helped her to become kind of so adamant in her advocacy was that she had a really supportive family. She had a family that wasn't going to hide the story, that wasn't going to, like, they were like, what you want to do, let's do that. Do you want to move forward? Let's move forward. And she did. She wanted this to go public. After years of trying to deal with it within the church and trying to get the church to act on something, she finally said, do something or I'm going public. Good for her. And I am going public in the most public way that you possibly can in 1992. Yes. In 1992, she plans and prepares for a public announcement where she is ready to name names. Yes. On Oprah. Yes. 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 My favorite, <laughs> my favorite, favorite, favorite thing ever. My childhood hero. <laughs> she really was. I did a whole presentation about her for Black History Month when I was in fifth grade. And it was like the pinnacle I... of my academic career. You know, we joke about oprah so much now and she seems kind of like cheesy but in the 90s she was kind of one of the few people really like doing actual reporting on this stuff that wasn't just crazy satanic panic yeah and you can call her cheesy all you want but that woman built an empire an empire yeah and i think if anyone's calling her cheesy they're probably a little jelly i mean i'm a little jelly of oprah but who isn't but who we all should be But so in 1992, Barbara Blaine appears on Oprah. After years and years of trying to get the church to do something, they finally, just days before her appearance where she's getting ready to name Mm. names, they finally suspended Father Warren. Now, again, they only ever suspended him. He was never officially defrocked or lacicized, which is the formal word for defrocking. Mm He was just suspended. The intent was always for him to make amends and to ask for forgiveness and for him to come back. But after Barbara Blaine kind of goes on Oprah, she's continuing fighting and doing all of this work. It doesn't take long for two more women to come forward against Warren with similar stories. Good. She starts just furthering building that network, exposing the abuses and just raising hell. Whether or not that's a play on words, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it is. I don't know. I mean, it works. 
It works. There's like a corollary theological discussion that could be had with all these things. Like what's the function of forgiveness? What's the function of, you know, uh, contrition, etc. that I'm going to be thinking. It'll be what keeps me up all night when I'm like, <laughs> can't sleep after all my pee breaks. Well, as you are thinking about that, I want you to think about how the Catholic Church ended up treating Barbara. Mm. Um, because while she's doing all of this work and well, you know, whatever else is happening, this is also in the midst of all of the clerical abuse just in general starting to yeah. get a ton of media attention. Yeah. By 2002, it was front and center. Mm-hmm. And the church is under fire. They're not responding well. The former director of the local diocese, his name was Father Thomas Quinn, reportedly told a Toledo Blade reporter that he wanted to, quote, plant bombs around Barbara oh Blaine. Oh, my God. At her upcoming speaking engagement. What? He really said that? He really, really said wow. that. Wow. That's dark. So that's about how well the Catholic Church was dealing with that's this criticism. That's really dark. Now, he would, the diocese, not mm-hmm. him, would go on to apologize for this comment. <laughs> wow. That is so dark. Again, I think this was a incredibly powerful institution that is getting criticized for the first time in a long time yeah. and not taking it no. well. No, really, really, really not well at all. Wow. And only there's only more evidence and more people coming forward. By this time in 2002, eight women had come forward with specific claims against Chester Warren. Wow. And there is reason to believe that there were significantly more victims. Mm-hmm. Now, the victims that came forward were all women, but it is likely that he had victims, both men and women. It seems like based on things that have been said, he did not discriminate. God, that's so bleak. What he was after was control and domination and humiliation. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Only after years and years of fighting would Chester Warren be moved from suspension to dismissal Mm. in the church. Again, we're still falling short of him officially being defrocked. Yeah. And having his right to exercise ministry and to exercise Catholic practices removed from him. Yeah, that's really sad. Like it, it should not have to go that far. Yeah. Um, again, like we said, kind of suspension is intended to be lifted when a person shows repentance. Yeah. And he was never even approaching repentance. Yeah. He was later found to still have access to children, in fact. Ugh. Still have access to children from the church. At one point, he was found to be living with a woman who was a school teacher and a tutor. Mm. He also, so part of his dismissal was that he was only supposed to be at the church at certain times there were certain times that he was allowed to be there to worship and to pray and to confess and whatever mm. he did not even pretend to respect that wow he would show up whenever the hell he wanted at whatever hours he wanted still presenting in clerical garb still wearing the collar still signing things as father i know that he was doing that as late as 2005 that's insanity yeah yeah. It wasn't until, like, the court 
Like the state of Ohio had to step in and suspend him from being in these locations. I mean, if you think about like what what the fallout would be if a registered sex offender was just like blatantly breaking the the mm-hmm. confines of their probation or or whatever. Yeah. And there would be community outrage, there would be like you know immediate action taken most likely Mm -hmm. right and this is supposed to be functionally kind of the same thing that the catholic church is trying to handle internally they're trying to admit without admitting that yes he did this Mm -hmm. but completely failing at controlling this person yeah and it really just shouldn't be that hard to control it just really shouldn't no no it really shouldn't records um so another place where i got a lot of information from was the bishop accountability project that website Oh, I spent some time on that the other night. Oh, after we got off? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I couldn't sleep, so. <laughs> Sorry, because of me? Uh, only partially. <laughs> <laughs> but I was bit- looking for, like, uh, parishes in, like, my region that have had issues, mm-hmm. and it was just a, it was a wormhole, so. Oh, did you find any? Uh, U of D Jesuit High School had a blow-up that I wasn't aware of. Recently? Mm-hmm. Not super recently, but definitely 2000s. I can't remember the date off the top of my head. But mm, yeah, okay. but it was bad. Like multiple priests. Oh my God. Well, uh, we're, well, you're just dropping us right back into the story because that's where this is about to go. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so again, it. although our story started in 1980, we are now in the early 2000s. Yeah. So keep that, that timeline in mind. Yeah. One of the things that the church created to try to deal with these complaints was to create a sort of panel of folks to screen these claims that were coming in because they thought, oh, well, now everybody's going to accuse us of abuse and it's mm. just going to get out of hand and it's going to be a witch hunt. And, and you could stop abusing people. I don't mm. know. Just a crazy idea. Just a crazy idea. Keep yeah. your shit together. Uh, mm. Protect your parishioners yeah so one of the things that they created was this kind of like panel of community members so lay people and church people it included lawyers psychologists parents social workers all of them and it was their job to look at these accusations and decide whether or not they needed to investigate them Mm. i will point out that that meant that their investigation was to report it to the bishop not to the police yeah i keep thinking like well i don't hate it but then you say that and i'm like well i hate it yeah yeah and some of the members i I will proudly say the psychologist specifically was like um we need to do something more about this yeah good job psychologist thank you thank you for representing my profession (laughs) so in 2002 This panel receives a letter from a woman um, who at the time was known as Survivor Doe. Mm. This letter describes years and years of ongoing ritualistic sexual abuse. Ritualistic. Ritualistic. Okay. So I'm going to go into it a little bit. This was known as the Survivor Doe letter, but the woman would later come forward as Sister Anne-Marie Borges. Mm. another nun who had attended these same Catholic schools in Toledo, Ohio. She 
In her letter demands a meeting with the panel where she confronts them stating that she had been sexually abused by the clergy and other members of Toledo Catholic churches Mm. and was demanding $50,000 in reimbursement for the cost of her counseling and prescription medication that she required to treat her trauma. Wow. Now, before I go forward and talk about her story, I do think... And I hate myself for having to talk about this, but it is important. Sister Borges reported that these memories came up after undergoing regression hypnosis therapy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So Mm. for those of you who were not obsessed with the 90s. um, (laughs) How could you not be obsessed with the 90s? What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) So regression hypnosis therapy... This is a treatment that I hesitate to call a treatment or a therapy. Mm. It was very popular in the early 90s um, as a supposed treatment for trauma. Essentially, it is featured in many a good movie. Um, It is featured in the X-Files. Fox Mulder undergoes regression hypnosis. It has been found to not only be ineffective, but to do more harm than good. Mm. Because... Essentially what it does is it puts the person who is coming in in a severe state of distress, looking for help, puts them in a hypnotic state, and asks them to kind of relive these traumatic moments in their life. Yeah. Where that goes wrong is that if you know anything about hypnosis, people are very susceptible to suggestion Yeah. in these hypnotic states. It is very easy to implant and to create memories, even if you're not doing it on purpose. And that really became the trend in the late 80s and early 90s for Mm. treating any kind of trauma. And this intertwined with the satanic panic really created a lot of what we now know to be very false memories, um, very exaggerated events. And I want to be very clear what I'm saying here. I am not saying that she was not abused and was not traumatized. But I want to put a context around some of the things that she recalls. Yeah. She was in a system of schooling with known abusers. Mm. While we're focusing on Chet Warren, he was not the only person involved in this. Mm. I just want to put that out there. Okay. Before we kind of go into some of the things that she described. Okay. Regression hypnosis therapy is no longer an acceptable form of treatment because of how it twists people's memories and because mm. many people have come forward since to say that they were forced and pushed to say things that did not happen, that it made their symptoms worse, wow. and that it ruined many, many of their relationships. That's so sad. And it really was like... It was so trendy. I don't want to say trendy. It was very popular. Yeah. I mean, it was very popular in the 90s to undergo hypnosis for all kinds of things like, Mm -hmm. you know, smoking cessation or overeating or other addictions and things like that. Like it was, I can't remember what it was that like my mom was talking about doing hypnosis for at some point in the 90s. Like Mm -hmm. it was just so like it was such a pop culture thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And And I don't think that. 
the damage never became a pop culture object, right? Like no one ever thought about that, you know? No, nobody ever wanted to go back and revisit the damage that this did. Mm -hmm. And it left a lot of people who came in seeking therapy and seeking help for true distress. Mm -hmm. It It left them in a worse state. Yeah. So all of that said, Sister Anne Marie sought therapy for severe emotional distress. She Mm -hmm. went in for help because she needed it. Yeah. In the letter that she details to the panel, she describes ritualistic sexual and physical abuse committed by Father Chester Warren and Gerald Robinson. (gasps) Oh. She further names a local pediatrician, school teachers, her father, and her grandfather in this ring of abuse. Wow. What she describes include ritualistic sexual abuse, being buried and dug up, being forced to mutilate animals, eat feces, and to abuse other children. Wow. She describes this all happening by men dressed as women and men in robes. Interesting. If any of that is kind of sparking anything for any of our listeners... If you have ever read the book Michelle Remembers, mm. these stories are so similar. Mm. Like, I've read Michelle Remembers. I I have a lot of feelings about Michelle Remembers. I haven't, but I'm going to put it on my Amazon list right now. Also, just listen to the uh, the Summer Book Club. The uh, You're Wrong About Summer Book Club that they do Michelle Remembers. Mm. Okay. Got it. Good tip. Thank you. Yeah, and I will lend it to you if you ever want to borrow it. Ooh, fun. Um, but again, she describes, Sister Anne-Marie describes all these people in long dresses, men dressed as women, and all of these people going by nuns' names. So being mm-hmm. called nuns' names. Sister this and sister that. Interesting. Any thoughts you want to share about all of that? Well, it's troubling. It's super troubling. Mm-hmm. Like... I'm curious how she dates her her experiences because what I'm seeing is that that book came out in 1980. Mm-hmm. She had come forward in 2002 and she claimed that the, the abuse began when she was six and continued throughout her time in Toledo. Mm. So I believe around starting in the 80, the, probably the 70s because she was relatively young when she came forward. Gotcha. And it's interesting to note, too, that the book has is considered uh, discredited, that nothing... 100,000% yeah. discredited. I yeah. would love to hear your thoughts on this book. Yeah, I feel very, like, my literature bone is, like, tickling right now. Yeah, so it's just, like, anytime. I mean, it's it's the same thing with, like, the entire satanic panic moment. Like... Mm-hmm. It's not as though cases didn't happen that had those influences or the iconography or this or that, but the craze of it does mean that there's also going to be people that cried wolf. And my impulse is always to side with the survivor, always Mm -hmm. to, you know, if there's like any kind of suspension of disbelief, it's always on behalf or, you know, like towards the survivor, you know what I mean? So. Mm I'm, I'm I'm very curious if it was ever able to be substantiated. My feelings on this are very much kind of along the lines of in most early cases of like satanic panic, ritual abuse, 
there is a core of truth there Mm -hmm. that like I am certain many of these children were abused not all of them because some of them have also come forward to be like I have no idea what I was talking about I was Mm -hmm. pushed to say these things and there are a million podcasts about the satanic panic and Mm -hmm. they can go into much more depth about this but I feel like there is always a core victim yes there yes and other things got out of control and then we lost sight of the core victim Mm -hmm. and that is not what I want to do right now 100% yeah so so after Survivor Doe or Sister Borges comes forward there are a few other women that come forward Mm-hmm. that describe similar sexual abuse that add some details there's some disagreeing details but of course we would expect that mm-hmm. a woman named Teresa Bombries came forward with similar stories she claimed that she was taken to an old farmhouse to be abused by men dressed in nuns clothing that's that particular aspect is so interesting I want you to hold on to that particular aspect too Oh, it's not going away. I I didn't think it would. Mm -hmm. Teresa said, and I think that this part is also really interesting. She said that in regard to her abusers, she felt that their goal was, quote, to create an atmosphere so bizarre no one would believe them. Mm. And I I can see that. I totally can, too. That's the thing that it it makes it all click, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. So then again, Teresa comes forward to other women come forward with similar stories. I think it's important to note none of these women knew each other. Mm, That is really important. A farmhouse was investigated um, that met the description that Teresa gave. However, this was years after it was reported that the abuse happened Mm. and no evidence was able to be found at the time. Bombry sued the Oblates for the sexual abuse and for the cover-up of the sexual abuse. She was mm-hmm. only able to sue privately because fucking statutes of limitation. Oy. But she did settle for an undisclosed amount with the mm. Oblates. Okay. You know, I'll be honest that there are a lot of victims and potential victims in these cases, and many of them chose to remain anonymous. Yeah. It was kind of hard to sift through when no, okay, this, this doe said this, this doe said this. I would really encourage you to look at SNAP, look at the Bishop Accountability Project if you're curious mm-hmm. about this. There is so much information that I would never be able to include in a podcast about this. Yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting. Just yeah. super interesting. Each one of these people, like I could do a dedicated podcast about clerical oh, abuse. and 100%. Yeah, 100%. Be kicked out of my family. Yes. But- <laughs> <laughs> But I want to make note of something that although some of these ritualistic abuse claims did sound far-fetched, there is one of those oddest of odd details that you hung on to Mm -hmm. that was actually able to be substantiated. Was it? So in the investigations of this abuse, when it was finally investigated legally, Mm -hmm. the police interviewed a church lay minister so a just a lay person not a priest but somebody that did like youth group stuff and whatever mm-hmm. his name was jerry mazachowski he was also a retired school teacher mm. mazachowski admitted to police that he and other folks involved in the church again clergy and lay people at least one other priest used to dress up in nun drag 
Interesting. Okay. And they'd give each other nun names. And they had, it was so interesting. I popped my headphone out. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And they had, they uh, assumed nun names. Is that what you said? Ah, I love that you said assumed. Yes, they assumed nun names and they called their group the Sisters of Assumed Mary. Nuh-uh. Yes. Or Sam. It really just gets, all that Catholic stuff just really gets in your head after years and years and years. Like All that like precise vocabulary. Yeah, the language of assumption just, Uh it just gets in there. So the Sisters of Assumed Mary was this kind of like, according to Mazachowski, just a fun little foolish camp prankish fraternity style thing. Interesting. Police did ask him specifically, did Father Robinson have anything to do with this? Because ever since Survivor Doe's letter, now we have more reason to look into Father Robinson. Mm-hmm. He is suddenly potentially an abuser. Yeah. Mazachowski insisted he, he's like, no, he was never involved in Sisters of Assumed Mary. He had nothing to do with it. He was a good guy, blah, 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 all of that. Interesting. Okay. We still have like all of this stuff going on and all of this evidence tumbling down police with the survivor doe letter and community pressure are now forced to reopen the case against gerald robinson regarding sister margaret ann's murder yay yay the tides of the community had changed and the tides of the police culture had changed yeah yeah for sure with all of this increasing attention to clerical abuse and legal pressure, mm-hmm. there's no avoiding it at this point. There's really not. Yeah, someone's going to make you, force you to take another look at that. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness for Thank goodness. For Thank that. you, Survivor Doe. Yes. So now it's 2003, and we've got some new detectives on the case of Sister Margaret Ann's murder. Their names are Ross and Forrester. Cute. Now, at this point, we have way more speculation and theory than we do evidence. We have no new evidence. Yeah. They actually, and all of the Catholic in you will cringe, they did dig up Sister Margaret Ann's body. Did they? Yeah. Well, they'd had to. That's good. To try to gather any other weapon evidence, DNA evidence. Any DNA Mm -hmm. at this point would have been long gone. Eh. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. You're right. Because when they did the original autopsy, they did keep her fingernail clippings. Mm, Yeah. They were able to find some DNA underneath her fingernails. It did not match anybody. We were Mm. not able to get any matches. Right. Evidence technicians and investigators said we weren't going to get any matches. It's just not enough DNA. Yeah. I'm curious if we would be able to get any DNA now, 18 years later, with the crazy advances but maybe i mean if it you have to see how degraded the material mm-hmm. is at that point in time yeah they were able to they had new some new methods and techniques for looking at the weapon evidence however mm. so one of the things that they did when they disinterred her was they looked at the skeletal remains um specifically in her jaw there appeared to be an indentation from a weapon in her jaw mm. If you remember, we have the letter opener or the little saber. Yeah, our souvenir saber. I can't forget that. I want to say they were able to precisely match the saber to her jaw, Mm. to the cut in her jaw. 
they had two expert witnesses testify about this. One said, yes, I held the letter opener against the jaw and it was a perfect fit. It it slid in there like a glove. Mm. The other expert witness said it could fit. It would fit. But I can't say that it's 100% that weapon. Okay. That makes sense. That's fair. And that's what an expert witness is going to say. Are we going to be able to re-explore the blood that was found underneath the wax seal on the saber? There is no blood left to explore further. Ah, okay. That little bit of trace evidence was literally all that they had. Yeah. So they have that little bit of trace evidence that is on the books. They know that. They have blood splatter patterns on the cloth. So one of the weird things that they did was they looked at blood splatter evidence for like cutting through a cloth and for like laying something on a cloth and all of the different ways that blood spatter would pass Mm. for the police at that time that was enough to make a charge interesting so the blood splatter evidence and the possession of the weapon was enough to charge robinson and he was arrested and taken in april 2003 on charges of aggravated murder wow I don't doubt his guilt necessarily, but that seems like not quite enough. Although it's one thing to be able to bring a charge, another thing to be able to convince a jury. So, I think that you're with a lot of people on this one that that was that did not seem like quite enough to make a charge mm-hmm. or quite enough to convict at that point. Yeah, yeah. Robinson was arrested from his small home in Toledo, Ohio, which was oddly situated next door to the police station. Ah, well, that's easy. That was easy. And right across the street from University of Toledo. After he was taken in, police searched his home. They found a few small things that they read into a lot. Mm. It is 2003, but it is Toledo. So it's really like (laughs) It's really 1993. (laughs) Yes. They found some Black Sabbath cassettes and some ACDC. Ooh. And they found a book on the occult with a chapter on black mass and human sacrifice. Hmm. So they looked a lot into this one, and they really tried to make this look kind of evil, but it was also published by a Catholic press. And a lot of people would be like, well, he's a priest, so he probably has, like, other religious literature Yes, yeah. in his home. One thing that they also tried to make kind of a big deal about was that he had a lot of photos of the dead. Hmm. Um, just, like, photos of people in their casket and whatnot. Mm. which this is actually an old it's a polish tradition but it's a tradition in a lot of slavic countries where you take a picture of family members and whatnot in in a lot of communities honestly like it's just not and especially so my question was like and again he's a bad guy i don't doubt were they funerals that he had like presided over were they people that he knew because that Yeah, I mean, that's a tradition for a lot, a lot, a lot of communities from all over the world. Yeah. I couldn't find certainty on whether or not they were, you know, funerals that he had presided over or anything like that. But again, he was a priest for decades. Yeah. So it didn't shock me to see this. Actually, when I read it in the book, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm sure he would. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if like rattling around an old family album from my family that I wouldn't find a couple of casket photos. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, like, anytime I see stuff like that, it's like, okay, it's interesting, but at the same time, like, if somebody were to come through and look at my book collection, 
mm-hmm. they would potentially think I was deranged. Probably. So like yeah. when you use things like books and music against somebody, to mm-hmm. me that just says that you have a shaky case. Yes, absolutely. And it's it's scary. And it's a scary precedent to set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Robinson is taken in, interrogated, and asked kind of now, 24 years later, about the day, what happened the day of the crime. He again, he says, I was in the shower at the time. I rushed down to hear it. They asked him, did you have a key to the sacristy? All of that stuff. And he is relatively similar stories, although there are some kind of small kind of tinges of like changing his story. Like, oh, mm-hmm. I was... I was in the shower versus I was just getting out of the shower or I ran down or then he changes the story. He's like, no, I couldn't have ran down. I couldn't have run down because I was in a Cossack and you can't run in those. And I'm like, yes, you can. Mm. But what really gets him is so they're recording this interview. So they leave him in the interrogation room for a second for them to catch their breath and a tactic that police will use sometimes just to see what happens when you're alone. Yeah. And apparently when he is left alone, he puts his head in his hands and he starts to start saying, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, really, really panicking. Oh, interesting. Okay. When Detective Ross comes back, Robinson pulls himself together and then starts yelling and screaming that Shwateki did it. He did it. It was Shwateki and I should have confronted him, but I didn't have it in me then and just starts like throwing in accusations at father shwateki whoa okay i wasn't expecting any of that i thought he would be playing it like so calm and connected connected collected (laughs) he's pretty elderly at this point yeah yeah remember 24 years later i think he was about in his 40s at the time and so i think by this time he's in his late 60s okay so Although they get some limited useful information for Robinson, what eventually is the evidence that kind of puts him away is that weapon evidence of the letter opener. Mm-hmm. Everything in the case hinges on the evidence on that letter opener. Mm-hmm. It was that they again said this is an exact fit. There's nothing else that could fit this well. He is the only person like this is a rare knife. This is a rare weapon. And when all of this evidence gets taken to court, nobody really knew how this was going to go. Well, there's still, there's a gaping hole here. Yeah. And it's motive. Mm-hmm. Where, how do we really connect Robinson to Sister Paul? So mm-hmm. you do not have to prove motive in a crime. Yeah. But it sure does help. The motive that was suggested was that sister margaret ann learned about the abuse Mm -hmm. that she somehow walked in on something or came across some evidence and she was threatening to move forward and to expose robinson Mm. now we know that the two did not like each other right 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 so the motive was she learned something, she caught him, and he killed her to keep her quiet. Right. So if you were on that jury, I know I didn't cover every tiny bit of detailed evidence, but this is going to be a long episode. <laughs> what would you think? Oh, gosh. It feels, again, kind of like Peterson. Mm-hmm. Like, probably he did it. Mm-hmm. But does this specific 
parcel of evidence create in me beyond a reasonable doubt? No, it absolutely does not. I mean, in the absence of like, you know, something physical, forensics, I feel like what you need to offset that absence is motive. Like you need a story, right? Like it has to make sense. Mm -hmm. Or at least like, you know, we, we know that some people saw a man running from the chapel area, could anyone have come in and, and identified that as, as Gerald Robinson? They had all of the technicians, all of those people who they gathered the stories from early on. They all said, we saw a man in clerical garb. We saw someone in long black dressings. We saw this. Nobody was able to definitively say this is who yeah. it was. Yeah. So, I mean, no. Like, I, I couldn't. I would be the juror that was like are we sure Mm -hmm. and I just don't know how you could be sure with that I don't know how you could be sure yeah I feel like there I don't know who else could have done this yeah who else would have had access I mean they heard the running footsteps they saw somebody in clerical garb running away Mm -hmm. he fits all of the descriptions but again is that enough yeah, and I mean, we've seen over and over and over again how somebody, quote-unquote, fitting a description leads to just a bevy of wrongful convictions that then have mm-hmm. to be overturned, right? So, yeah. you know, and I just, I was waiting for, like, some kind of circumstantial link between Sam and Robinson and, you know, like, Nun's clothing and the way that her clothing was found as some sort of, like, gestured like if if he was found to have been a part of sam and sam was about like making a mockery of women Mm -hmm. then it stands to reason for me like you could make a couple of cognitive leaps to say that he was in the business of humiliating and belittling femininity right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is certainly not a motive for murder but it would at least be but it has been before (laughs) yeah and it would be interesting in putting together like a who was this guy in the moment of this crime, you know? Yes. And I, there was so much interesting stuff about this case, but I left feeling really disappointed. Yeah. Just because I don't, I don't feel like they tied everything together. You know, I have to wonder too, with all the sexual abuse cases being outside of the statute of limitations, you want to see the guy put away for mm-hmm. all of that wrong that he did, right? So it's like, I, I would want to see him punished for those things and that punishment is not a possibility so you know you have to wonder a little bit too like if finding him guilty was in a way like maybe it's not enough for this crime but we know he's a bad dude so Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like you can't say that but I kind of wonder if that was a little bit of an undercurrent you know a little bit of the implied kind of sacrificial lamb Mm -hmm. type of thing like somebody has to be a symbol some we have to be able to tell the public that um, we do hold people accountable of this stuff. Yeah, exactly. Because for what it's worth, the church did completely turn their back on him. Mm-hmm. They suspended Robinson from clerical activities. Um, they refused to pay his legal fees. Mm-hmm. Which, again, in in the face of all this, these sexual abuse allegations, that was just an interesting choice to me. Yeah. yeah. Was he all the way uh, lasicized? No. Interesting. There were some indications that he was giving clerical advice and masses and whatnot in in the prison. So he was convicted oh, okay. of aggravated murder. 
again, the city of Toledo was very, very split on this. Mm-hmm. Older Catholics and Poles in the area were committed to Robinson. They, you know, did fundraisers. They wow. for bail money. Some people even put up their homes for collateral to to help pay his legal fees. Jeez. They just could not fathom how a priest could have ever done this. Others were really hardened by all the breaking news about clerical abuse. And like you had kind of said, they wanted to see somebody go down for something. Yeah, it's just it's very understandable to want to see somebody go down for that. It is. There was so much happening at that crime scene. There was so much posing and ritualism and all of that that it, it feels like it got dropped off so that they could just commit this guy. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it just sucks because it still feels like like we don't really know the true story of what happened to Sister Margaret Ann Paul, you know, and we don't know why. We don't know what she actually, you know, really went through, what she did know, what she didn't know, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it justice? I mean, we've asked that question before, but, like, does it feel like justice? Mm-hmm. It's hard because I feel like there was so much going on there. And I want to know. Yeah. You know, I want to know why Robinson did this. Me too. And it's also just like it's so early in his timeline, which is also super interesting. Mm-hmm. It's hard. It's interesting to think about the idea of somebody having committed a murder and then going on to abuse people for another 20 years mm-hmm. without having committed another murder. Yeah. You know? It's really, I don't know, this whole story, it was, there was so much intrigue and I felt so disappointed by the end of it. Yeah. Because here's the other thing I'm going to say. Chester Warren never received a real punishment. Right. Right. And so Robinson was only connected to Warren through um, Survivor Doe's letter. Mm. He was arrested, convicted. He died in prison. Mm-hmm. He was sentenced to 15 years. He tried multiple appeals. And the controversy of this case really never went away. Hmm. He was convicted in 2006, and he maintained his innocence until his death in 2014. Wow. Again, if you ask people in Toledo, you're going to get very differing opinions on what happened here. Yeah, it's going to be a very polarizing case. And I imagine it's also a really polarizing case in the legal community, too. Oh, I I can only imagine. He was Mm -hmm. the only priest convicted of killing a nun ever wow that's really interesting too but again chester warren as far as all the research i've done is still alive and out there hmm. i know that he was alive and out there i know 2005 with no consequences being put on him yeah yeah i don't know it just it feels unjust it does feel unjust and it just feels really sad it feels really really sad we're left with a lot of victims who never got justice and mm-hmm. a lot of kind of concealment and cover-up. Yeah, and a community and a church that feels like it's just trying to save a little face and yeah. somebody had to be scapegoated for it. Yeah. Not that he's not guilty. I'm not saying that. But yeah. I'm also not saying it's the most compelling case I've ever heard in the world for it is not a conviction. The most, it is not the most compelling legal case, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Dang. That's, that's the story of Sister Margaret Ann. That's just so sad. I mean, I was I was up much of the night the other night, like thinking about 
you know, obviously we spend all of our time pretty much that we're not working or caring for our children, our spouses and animals Dogs. and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> Basically like constantly entrenched in crime, right? Yeah. But it for me it hits different when the victims are elderly. Yeah. And I just spent a lot of my night thinking about Sister Margaret Ann Paul being 71 mm-hmm. on the eve of her 72nd birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, it just really kind of shook me a little bit. So if you're Catholic, perhaps say a rosary for Sister Margaret Ann Paul. If you are not Catholic, perhaps just think of her, you know, just save some space to think about her. Yeah. And if you have it in your mental and emotional energy, do check out Snap and the Bishop Accountability Project. Yeah, it's really interesting. A cursory glance over everything there. There's so many more cases. And I just looked in Toledo. Yeah, I look in Detroit and woo! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that Catholic, was a rabbit hole. Catholic towns, man. I know, man. So I'm sorry, Grandma. I am sorry, Boosh. I had to tell the story. You did have to. And it was it was really, really well done, my friend. Thank you. I was very, very nervous about it, especially because I knew that the ending was going to be disappointing. Mm, yeah. It's not disappointing, though. I mean, the outcome of the case is disappointing. Your telling was not. Thank so. you. I try. You're very welcome. Yeah. Why don't you tell us what we are going to do next week? I would love to. I um, I think it's interesting these days that we are a little bit in sync with each other, even though we, we choose our cases in isolation of each other as far mm-hmm. as like kind of personal touch or association. Mm-hmm. So uh, next week we are going to be covering a, a Michiana case out here that started in the small town of Wakarusa, Indiana, which is the town that my husband is from. And uh, we're going to be looking at the case of Carrie Nunamaker, who was a beautiful teenage girl who was uh, killed in Elkhart, Indiana and just the kind of twists and turns and craziness of of that case and how it was investigated and how it ended up just really kind of upended a community you know Mm -hmm. uh completely so uh and my husband remembers her as being his friend's really pretty older sister and um yeah so she just kind of you know tugs at my heart so come back for that it'll be it's kind of a it's a doozy of a case. I'll tell you that. It's a doozy. Yeah. It's not a serial killing or anything like that. It's one, you know, one victim. But the way that this thing goes down is it's a doozy. Yeah. So come back for a doozy, people. All right. So are you excited? I am. Yes. In the meantime, follow us on the socials. Yes, please. Say nice things about us online. Yes, please. And that's all. That's it. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Have a good week, people. We love you. More importantly, though, just again, like reserve some space to think about these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that's always really important to set aside that. Yeah, we're all like really into the juicy details and stuff like about that. But there are humans that are involved and yeah. and we really should be making sure to take the time and space to think about them. And although this was only one murder victim, I think that we there were a lot of other victims um, uh, yes. named and unnamed in this episode. A so. lot, yes. So, yeah, that's my that's my final chunk of wisdom for the night. So let's do our little sign off as our let's final piece it. of wisdom. Let's do it. As always, people, be nice. Eat cheese, and we, and we love, love you. you. That's our rosary. It really is. <laughs> 
It comes in a three. It's a trinity. <gasps> oh, the Midwestern trinity. Yes. Why are you frozen? Help. Girl, you better unfreeze. Come back. I don't know if you can I'm, hear I, me. You came back for a second. You came ooh, back. Ooh, you're back. You're back. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Okay. Ooh, that was scary. I just had a text open to you that I was like, oh my God, you're frozen. <laughs>